No! Who's doing this to me? I know there's someone there. Who's there? Who are you? Just give me a sign. Oh, come on, if there's someone there, just give me a sign. Will you give me a sign? Who? What the f is Netflix? Who are you talking to? It'll sound crazy. Well, tell me anyway. I'm being controlled by someone from the future. What? I'm being controlled by someone from the future. Shall I ring Dr. Haynes? Yes, please. Listening to a podcast exploring faith and fear, what scares us and what saves us. This is the fear of God. Hello, and welcome to another amazing episode of the Fear of God podcast. Here at the Fear of God, we Find the holy in the horrific and hope that you enjoy the doing so as well. This is Nathan Rouse, one of your co-hosts. Typically with me is just longtime friend, Reed Lackey. He was here a minute ago, but he kind of went off, he kind of left the screen muttering to himself about either destroying his computer or throwing tea over his computer. I'm a little worried because this is not really, that is not, neither of those are smart choices for technology. You know, I don't foresee good things coming from either of those things hopefully uh, he'll be back uh, in such time as we can encourage him to not do those things regardless uh, in the interim while he is pondering um, I do want to encourage you if you have not done so before it well I, I guess I want to know do you enjoy our show and and in which case if you do and have not done so please take the two minutes or less if you just leave a rating, go leave us a five-star rating if you enjoy us that much. If you're like, these guys are legit, you know, they they watched Cam last week and just actually just had no idea what they were talking about and sounded like a bunch of fools. Give us some grace there. Uh, leave us a five-star rating. Um, if you enjoy what we do, leave us a glowing review. We will happily broadcast that uh, on Instagram and other forums and formats. Regardless, it is a thing that we enjoy it is. It helps us. It's beneficial, and we get to talk about you a little bit when we broadcast. Reed, you're here. I was hey. starting to ramble for a minute there. I'm glad you're back. I, it's okay. I, is your is your computer? Okay? I mean, you're talking to me on what I presume is yeah, a computer. I uh, I opted to do neither of those things. Oh, uh, good for I, you. I, I, I opted to neither destroy my computer or throw tea on it. Um, instead, I opted to pull my earlobe rather than bite my nails, and oh, that was. Well, 
that was. I didn't. Uh, I didn't so, even know that was the choice you were facing. But oh, really? Yes. I guess it, it, between it was, those, as a matter of fact, yeah. Between between those two, that I guess you chose the less self-destructive one. But now that you are here, I was while you were gone. It was something I was thinking about. You know, um, asking the people while you were gone. But now that you're here, I'll just ask you. And that's just, just what are you watching? What are you reading? What are you listening to? <laughs> so yeah, you're you're back. Well, um, so the, these films that I'm going to talk about are a bit—they're uh, outside of the the conversation because they were more prominent in the Oscars race. But there were two films, both of them nominated for the best actress in a film uh, that I stumbled across. And they they wound up being two of kind of my favorites of the Oscar pool, even though they weren't nominated for, you know, like picture or director or anything like that. So, And they both deal with somewhat similar subjects, uh, one of which is inherent in the premise. The other is a little bit of a spoiler. So I'm about to talk about, in brief, the films Can You Forgive Me and The Wife. I'm going to talk about both of those films very briefly. With as a, the, as a slight asterisk, uh, I think yes. it's "Can You Ever Forgive Me?" Right? Oh, maybe it is. Can you ever forgive yeah, me? Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah, I think it's "Can You Ever Forgive Me?" Um, I, ca- for, I can. I can. Please continue. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you yeah. for covering covering my asterisk there. So, <laughs> yeah. um, so anytime, basic- buddy. Anytime. <laughs> so, so basically, um, <laughs> the. Uh, so I want to discuss, uh, again, in brief, the similarities and the impact of the films Can You Ever Forgive Me and The Wife. But to do so, I have to have some minor spoilers there. If you are interested yeah. in those films, yeah. then just, just be aware I'm going to spoil something. So both of them, interestingly enough, um, uh, they were nominated for Best Actress and nothing else. Uh, actually, Can You Ever Forgive Me, I think, was also nominated screenplay. for Adapted Screenplay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and deservedly so. That was a really sharp screenplay. I loved Can You Ever Forgive Me. Between the two films, Can You Ever Forgive Me was my favorite of the two. But both of them, interestingly, deal with writers who are being overtly deceitful. In Can You Ever Forgive Me, um, she is a writer who has struggled. She had a bestseller, but then she struggled to. She she writes biographies, and she struggled to get a new work off the ground. Um, so, in order to give to to gain some money, because she's really struggling financially, she takes into forging liter like letters of famous people, and she does so exceptionally well. And initially, she makes a lot of money at it. But as you can imagine, by the by the title things don't uh, stay according to plan. I'll come back to that one in a second. The wife, I had no idea what the wife was about. All it said in its inherent premise was uh, this man, (laughs) yeah, it said the wife, and her husband wins the Nobel Prize for Literature, and she reevaluates her life choices, I think is is what the premise, uh, sort of preliminary premise said. But you come to find out, and this is a huge spoiler for the wife, last chance, I warned you. You come to find out that he has, that this, this husband who has won the Nobel Prize for Literature, that actually he did not write the material, that she, the wife, actually wrote it. But it was this fascinating thing to me about how the reason she wrote it and the reason she allowed him to take the publishing credit for it, he did some editing work on it, but the reason she allowed him to take the publishing credit for it is because... If she had written it and published it under her name, it never would have received the respect and recognition that... Well, that's, her, that's her perception of... Yeah, yeah. Yes. Her perception is that had she published as herself, it would never have been read 
by the volume of people that it was read by, and it would never have been received and awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature had she published as herself. And so here were these two films seen in pretty quick succession by me, dealing with I'm, I consider myself to be a writer. I've written uh, and sold screenplays before and, and have tried to dabble in that world for a little bit. And so I consider myself a writer. It is something that fascinated me tremendously about these writers who, in order to attain success, have to sort of be deceitful and they have to exact some some fraud uh, in order to suit to gain did some notoriety, did it give you ideas? Is that is that where we're going? Here? Basically, basically, <laughs> it did. No, um, it's it's funny because immediately after, I think immediately following the wife, was it was? Yeah, immediately following the wife, I turned to my wife and I said, "Honey, I promise you, every word that I've written, I wrote." I'm just I'm just saying. Um, but it was interesting to me, and particularly, can you ever forgive me? I mean, the wife is powerful um, to me. Can You Ever Forgive Me is an outstanding film. It, it's a hard film to watch at times because it's a little uncomfortable. The characters, particularly the main character, is highly unlikable. But I know you've seen both films. Uh, her yeah, confet- yeah, I want your sure. thoughts. I'm uh, j- Just to sum up my recommendation for them, I love both of the films. I think they're powerful. They, you know, being seen in concert, they probably elevated each other. But my favorite thing about any of them was A, listening to and this is the number one listening to melissa mccarthy's confession in the courtroom Mm. oh my goodness that was so powerful and convicting convicting and then uh here watching glenn close's face uh in the wife when she's hearing them laud his work for the nobel prize for literature and watching her face as she realizes they're lauding me and don't even know it powerful powerful films uh yeah what did you what did you think about them um I, it's funny, your inroad from the writing standpoint, not, that was going to sound dismissive, I don't mean it to, but I thought of the wife, great performances, great premise. I did not really ultimately appreciate some of the execution of the film and and thus it would definitely not be in kind of a top 10 for me. Again, I think she's great. I think he's great. I think the premise is strong. Like it's a very compelling idea um, i just didn't love how it was executed in uh, sure in sure. some regard but if i were to sit down and i haven't and ultimately probably won't because who cares at this point and make a top <laughs> and make and make and make a top 10 uh can you ever forgive me rocketed into maybe the top three for me i loved oh, it um wonderful i think uh, you know she's fantastic he is fantastic i love the score i love the feeling um, I've listened to the soundtrack many times since watching it. Um, mm. It's got this very just New York feel to it um, that's really lovely. A lot of people considered it a bit erroneous that it did not get nominated for either director or picture. I'm in that camp. Yeah, I yeah. do. I do. And say it again. Um, I do. I do. So, <laughs> but no, I, I loved it. I loved it. Uh, yeah. Probably 30 minutes into it. Just... I, I had that feeling and this doesn't happen often. I love it when it does. I had the feeling half an hour in where it's just like, I love this. I, I don't know how yes. it's going to end. And I don't kind of know where the story goes per se, but all of the pieces work just yeah, period. It's an, it's an exceptional film. And honestly, uh, yeah, 
uh, of the all of the like Oscar sort of discoveries uh, that there were, it's the film that I'm most prone to recommend to people because most people have already seen Black Panther. But sure. it's 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 the film that I'm most prone to say like, oh yeah. Not much attention was being paid to "Can You Ever Forgive Me," and that is a that is a powerful, fantastic film. So I'm glad you I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, so those those I, I resonate with your experience there on that one definitely. For me, you know, I, I referenced last week, you know, catching up on some of my own Oscar watching, of which "Can You Ever Forgive Me" was one of those, and then uh, beating you at the top twenty horror, top ten horror for 2018, um, which you know just Gloater. never just never gets old. Um, let's be honest. <laughs> You're so mean. But, uh, but, um, um, uh, you know, let it, let it not be said. I'm not something of a well-rounded individual in my media consumption. I did actually take my kids, um, to go see How to Train Your Dragon 3, The Hidden World. Um, oh, I want to see that so bad. Dude, talk about, uh, I'm going to make a weird analogy here that is coming to me in real time. Uh, uh, the How to Train Your Dragon movies surprised me in their escalation the way the the Andy Serkis Apes movies do. Oh, you know, okay. that, that yeah, feeling yeah, yeah. of like when you're like all of a sudden realizing, oh, my God, I love these movies. Yeah. I, I, don't, oh, I, don't, yeah. I don't know if that resonates in the same way there. But that's it's that similar kind of feeling where you look back and you're like, holy crap, these are amazing. Yeah. And now I, I don't have as much familiarity with the first one like to sit down and watch it right now would feel, it wouldn't feel like the first time because I've seen it, but uh, it'd be a lot of re-familiarizing. Um, gotcha. I, but I love the second one. Love oh, it. The second um, one is next level, man. It's it's incredible. I want to, can I spoil something of the third one for you? Or are you going to yeah. be like really mad? Okay. I'm well, not going to be mad. But, no, yeah. it's, it's, um, it, uh, there's, it's not specifics per se. So it's the third movie. You know, it's the last of, of the stories yes, they're sure, telling. Sure. Um, I kept waiting on someone to die. Not, I don't even okay. mean a, a, a specific character. I just mean like you kept waiting for that and it doesn't happen. And uh, mm, that's the, mm-hmm. that's the spoiler. And it's funny cause, cause there's a way in which that second film with, mm. the, with the father's passing is so, gorgeous and heavy and beautiful and hard and, and lovely and emotional. Yeah, um, yeah. And it, it, it kind of, the third one had this weird effect on me where it made me assess how I appreciate storytelling because mm. there's a world in which I would say maybe the third film doesn't have some of the narrative punch of the second one, but then it makes me feel like, well, am, am I just sort of, viewing a thing through a false lens of well you need these major beats in order to be oh, quote unquote, I see what you're to saying. be a quote unquote competent story because here's right. the thing about the third one read it is a beautiful film mm-hmm. telling a beautiful mm-hmm. story and yeah. it's like well am i just sort of conditioned to certain you know narrative beats that now i'm being unfair to what is legitimate a legitimate piece of gorgeous art that is yeah, yeah. lovely and the last five minutes of that movie, like if you're tuned in on it, and I didn't rewatch the first two before going, and I kind of wish I had, but if you're tuned into it, the last five minutes of that movie are breathtaking and, and, yeah, and, and yeah. maybe, and maybe weep inducing. They're just so gorgeous and lovely. Mm. And, you know, I, there are ways in which it's interesting. I did read they greenlit the second and third movie kind of simultaneously. I don't. No, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there is a way in which the third movie feels a little like an epilogue. Um, okay, okay. 
you know, but, but I loved it. I, I, I heartily recommend it. I think if you can see it on a big screen, those movies are beautiful to behold on a big screen. Like mm. the animation in those are just stellar. Yeah, I mean it look it just looks absolutely beautiful. You referenced briefly the score in uh, you know, can you can you ever forgive me? The score for the Dragon movies, How to Train Your Dragon movies is just absolutely I mean, uh, th- there's a there's a track in the first one that uh, on the soundtrack is just called Test Drive that is I mean, it takes my breath every single time I hear it. It is absolutely gorgeous. It's a familiar refrain. I've even heard it in the trailers and stuff like that. Really? It's just it, yeah, it's just well, it's absolutely fantastic. I mean, I referenced last week there's an essay I could maybe write about Nell from Hill House like I have these things percolating in me sometimes and and should really put pen to paper but um not forgeries, not not, you know, sort of uh, plagiaristically, <laughs> right. but this third film spoke to me so deeply of like the the sort of kingdom ethic of creation equality like like our yeah, yeah. our need to be in right relationship with the created world and and yeah. and that's a really fascinating you know takeaway from what is ostensibly a quote unquote kids movie which is a really stupid nomenclature but it's just yeah it's just got this really beautiful kind of idea at its heart yeah. and i really i really love yeah. those movies well, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, you make me want to run out right now and watch it again. But that has uh, that has been yet another installment of What You Watching? What Are You Reading? Wow. What Are You Listening To? That's impressive. I would. I love that. I love that song so much. That's impressive. I, so I didn't do a lot of. I did. There was no prep for that because I didn't know what your thing was going to be. So I apologize yeah, for butchering it. That's but, all right. But no, you yeah. didn't butcher it. I, I heard it. I, I, it came through. I love how was it was it this conversation or last week when you were like playing down musical capability, like. I think I, I was playing down know. my musical capability last week. Yeah, yeah, and look at you. You just look well, thank at you, you, Reed. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. You're like the you're like the can you ever forgive me of of uh, <laughs> you know just kind of like musical talent. You're like you're like no, I'm I'm just down here. Don't don't worry about me. <laughs> and then he's like, I'm, I'm gonna pull this tune out of my ass. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, okay, so we got that taken care of. Uh, really interesting uh, stuff you and I have been digesting there. A lot of stuff. Uh, <laughs> <you know? laughs> um, uh, let's do this, Reed. So we are in the thick of our little sub series. Man, I love it. Who knows? Maybe, maybe here we'll pitch something to the crowd here. Um, mm. um, so we're in the middle of hashtag TV guideposts. Um, our, uh, sub series covering specifically right now, Mike Flanagan's The Haunting of Hill House, uh, on Netflix, uh, from back in October. If you did not watch in October, uh, please jump into this show. It is high quality stuff. Um, oh, yeah. I, in fact, you may recall this read. I texted you, I think maybe during Bent Neck Lady, maybe during Two Storms, which we we're about to discuss. Like this show is fear of God material if ever it existed. It is oh absolutely. It is yeah. scary. It is soulful. Um, it is special. It's it's got some real. Uh, um, I don't I don't know what. Um, but it's but it's <laughs> it's but got it's, all of it. It does. It does. Um, now putting a a small asterisk here. <laughs> um, uh, I do want to make note of the fact that this episode of the fear of God is our last of this broader Netflix and Chills series. That said, 
We are, y'all, you know we love us a series. So TV <laughs> TV Guidepost is bridging Netflix and Chills and next week and the three weeks following it. So for the next four weeks, culminating in the end of Hill House, we are going to be discussing the Netflix-based films of Mike Flanagan. Mm-hmm. Are, we, are we still in Netflix and Chills? Are we in something totally new? I like to think a little bit of both. Um <laughs> And in the spirit of attempting to title things that have uh, relevance to us as a show and relevance to us thematically, we are going to be opening a new series next week called Flannel Graph Flanagan. If you <laughs> it's grew, one of my if, favorite iterations. You like that? Oh, it's so good. Um, if you grew up in the church as Reed and I did, you may have deep, deep memories of, you know, your Sunday school classes with the flannel graph board and the little uh, uh, Jesus feeding the multitudes and all this sort of stuff and Moses parting the sea or whatever, you know, these, these scenes from biblical stories with flannel graph characters that you could move around, um, and just have a grand old time telling <laughs> Bible stories with. We are appropriating that language for our next series called Flannel Graph Flanagan, uh, which we've just been preempting with this Hill House conversation. Uh, that said, let's jump in. Let's, let's, Flip the light twice and go to the hill, the the hill house, uh, with this week's two storms, which is arguably of this series of television in general, one of the master strokes of the form. I mean, it is. Oh my gosh, it's incredible. Um, so two storms, the content of two storms is finally we get to all of our characters in one room together. And boy, boy, do we ever. Um, I stumbled upon this recently, uh, but I would encourage anyone and everyone who has enjoyed this TV series to go follow Mike Flanagan on Twitter. On his, He has a pinned thread on his Twitter account that is literally the behind-the-scenes story of the making of this episode. It is oh, wow. fascinating. It is amazing. There's some great anecdotes in there, but some, some specific highlights... For your knowledge, Reed, if you didn't know this, the sets for Hill House and the funeral home were both built and designed with episode six in mind. Wow. I wondered about that. That's, yeah. that's, that's yes. crazy. They, that's were, they were designed to connect to each other. Uh, the episode is comprised of five long takes. Mm. They, you, you, you don't pick up on this unless you're just really that savvy of a viewer, they built an elevator in the foyer of Hill House so okay. that a, so that a cameraman could step onto it. The elevator could go down as I think Liv and Daddy Crane are coming down the stairs. Yes. So, that, so he's coming yes. down. He steps off. The cameraman steps off the elevator. It goes back up. He turns around, and it's not there anymore to catch what's behind oh, him. Oh, my I mean, the, gosh. The le- I think he said – I think Flanagan said there's 200 production folk involved – and they, it was a big, big deal for Netflix to greenlight this. They had set folk, production folk working for, I think, a month rehearsing the blocking so oh, that, wow. so that they knew when lighting people had to be here, when camera guy had to be there, when you had to be out of the way. Something I didn't even pick up on in the watching of it. There are moments when Liv is walking down the hall and the statues follow her. So you've got. Wow production crew running off camera replacing these statues and then hiding behind them oh my god you know you've got so much just sleight of hand happening to pull off this thing to the point that the dolly they were using 
in the funeral home. They're following, I think, Stephen as he's walking up the aisle. Okay. Uh, whoever mans the dolly, I, I don't know the, the technical uh, position here, but had informed Flanagan the day of that the dolly they had was falling apart. Like, oh, lit- no. like, like literally they might get one or two takes because the carpeting they used they didn't realize it was going to impact the wheels of the dolly and it was oh. bra- it was breaking so he chose not to tell the actors because he didn't want them worrying about it and was sure. just like yeah. basically crossing his fingers that we're going to get what they need and they ended up oh, doing it but but it's just it, you, you should really go you read and and definitely our listeners go check out on twitter uh after you listen to this um it's a it's a lengthy thread but it just documents much of the the production process for this particular yeah. episode and it's it shows it is it is a masterwork, like I said, of the form and and just man, what an episode! Uh, oh, uh, narr- narratively and production wise. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, this is you know I said last week that Bent Neck Lady might be the emotional pinnacle, but this, technically speaking, is like episode six. If if taken in isolation, is a pretty effective little short you know, 55-minute horror film. Right. Even if you don't have some of the context that the rest of the show would prop up for you, this is still terribly effective. So th- you mentioned these five long takes. Well, the first the first shot is 25 minutes long. Right. Like 25 minutes of just moving around these characters, and it's just a marvel of inventive filmmaking. I love tons of the little relational touches that they develop in this, especially because these actors, as we've already sort of alluded to, the actors needed to convey in these continuous shots years and years of relationship that had to be consistent with their other interactions sporadically with each other throughout the series. And then I was realizing... The first time around, it didn't ping me very much how absent the father is through this, the children's character-centric episodes. Right. He really only p- appears in the wedding at Bentneck Lady Fresnel. But, like, we see him in the first episode, right? and we hear him in the first episode, and I had forgotten it. He's completely absent from 2, 3, and 4, completely absent from it, and then appears at the wedding of Nell. But then, so it, it's really impactful when he finally shows up at the funeral home, and good Lord, the shot, which circles around him, and he walks in, and we have seen the adults sitting in a certain configuration on the couch and chair that is in the lobby of this funeral home. When he walks in, the camera leaves them, pans around to find him. We see his reaction to them. And then it pans back around him where it reveals that all of the adults have been replaced with their child actor versions. And that, I mentioned last oh. week I mentioned last week that Arthur, I think that's the husband's of Nell's name. Of Nell's name, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, when he dies, it's one of the most uh, piercing emotional moments of the series. This would rank right there too. I mean, this this the first time I saw that moment, it was a punch in the gut. It was like, oh man, it it that is such a powerful thing. And it's funny when when I first started watching Hill House the first time, the chatter was about episode six. Well, you know, yeah. I, I didn't mm-hmm. know what that meant. I didn't know what the content was. Well, once you start watching episode six, from well, my experience of it was. And you're you're probably about three, four, or five minutes in, and start clicking that this is one take, and right. that's that's when it's like, okay, we're 
in store for something really special here. Absolutely. And it, Absolutely. and it completely delivers, you know, you're, oh, it really you, does. you, you until just now hadn't really totally clicked with me too. Like you mentioned the viewer hasn't had exposure to that iteration of that character change, even the context there. He, it, there's a case to be made that the power of that moment is because he literally has not seen these people all in one room. Yes. In a right. decade. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, because they went to live with Aunt Janet or whatever her name is. Yeah. Um, oh man, that's such a powerful, yes. such it's a powerful wonderful. moment. And we're mentioning that shot when he's seeing all of them as children, but then you talk about a punch in the gut. Walks up to Nell's casket, and it's it's young Nell in the oh, casket. God. I mean, like yeah. that's. I mean, and and those are just a few of the. T- that's all, Nathan. Everything we have talked about first 10 minutes. is in the first like 10, 15 minutes of this episode. But then it does not stop. And we talk about on this show how they are, how Flanagan is really adept at balancing fear with the more sort of sentiment and emotional components. This episode, like culminating in towards the end when he's running around when younger version of Hugh, which is Elliot, you know, right, when right, right. younger version of Hugh is running around. Elliot's not the character's name, everybody. It's Henry right, Thomas, right. which is why I'm saying that. Cause he was Elliot from ET, but um, he's <laughs> running, <laughs> he's running around chasing her and, you know, constantly like being confused right. about it. Windows are exploding. And then he looks back a second later and they're replaced. Holy cow. It's so crazy. I mean, it's just, it it is really phenomenal how much fear uh, Flanagan is able to generate, and how much how much of an emotional wallop this episode manages to achieve. Yeah, uh, a couple of reaction shots, character sort of payoffs. Steve's reaction seeing Nell in the coffin, and first time it didn't hit me this hard, but this time around I was watching and I was like, oh dang, that is when it is fully undeniable now at this point. That he saw a ghost, and that's why he freaks out so much, and that's why he says, "Positive ID, detective. That's that's her." You know, it's because this whole time he was probably, uh, you know, sort of disconnecting himself with, like, I didn't. It was a trick of the light. I didn't really see something else. I was just, you know, some. But that's when it really finally hits him. Oh yeah, I saw her. And well, and uh, that's that's a great narrative beat. I would even say the emotionality of it is so strong there because why I love that moment. I love the the siblings attempts to comfort Luke and Steven, the stoic, you know, mm. stayed older brother is like, it's all good. It's all good on your time, whatever, or whatever he's saying to try to comfort him and reassure him. And when he gets to the casket, he's the one who falls apart. He falls just, apart. Luke's was, Luke's a rock in this. Yeah, like, yeah, like yeah. this, this whole episode, Luke is probably, and no, he is, he's not probably Luke is the steadiest of those children in this moment. And right. I think that's significant because they all have a blow up, a breakdown. Theo's right. drunk. Right. Shirley loses her crap on Stephen, and then you know that that culminates in her finding out that not only did Theo take Stephen's book money, but her husband took it I, behind I, her back. I love that moment. Like, I mean, oh, it's it's, it's heart it's heartbreaking for that char- for her the character, but that is such a vulnerable moment for Shirley, who hates being vulnerable. I yeah. don't know. It's a really it's a really powerful moment when that happens um, oh it's incredible it's i want to i want i want to back up a little bit um and and this can we can throw in the theme bucket for four weeks from now but you know at the top of the series when steven is talking to that that homeowner whose husband she thinks she's seen oh yeah mm-hmm. and he says a ghost is a wish 
Um, yes. At the top of this episode, Shirley says most of what people say at a funeral is a wish. Yes. I, I just really love that that. That, yeah. that that sort of scripting continuity there. Um, it's funny. I don't feel like I'm like Shirley in personality at all, but there's a world in which that moment was was so heavy for me because and and I could point to multiple things over the course of my adult life where I've often felt like I learn a thing that a person has kept from me that feels revelatory and significant, but they kept it from me because they were worried about how I would feel about it. And mm. it, and so you, when that moment happens for her, I'm like, Oh God, sister, I know, I know what that feels like. Mm. You know I mean? Just, yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. Pe- people making choices on your behalf, thinking they're protecting you when right. ultimately maybe not. So, um, yeah, agreed. Uh, as I love to do, I, I did, write down a note of, of further articulating my connection to the show lost here that a similarity between lost and this are this group of characters having this one inflection point upon which all of the rest of their lives are filtered. And, you know, for the lost characters, it's their time on the Island for these characters. It's their time in this house, you know, like Mm, mm, mm -hmm. all, all of life post this house is filtered through their experience in that house. Yeah. Um, and that's just really sad and fascinating. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Um, so, I mean, honestly, I, f- I feel like this episode as a whole, I can't say too much more about it in this conversation because so much of it so directly ties to arcs of the characters right, right, that right. will culminate as a whole. I don't want to shortchange how brilliant and powerful Two Storms is in the larger whole, but I, I will say that for myself, I think a lot of my thoughts on moments that were revealed in Two Storms and what they mean for these people will come up again in our ultimate like sure, longer sure. Hill House conversation because it is, of any of the other episodes, you've been following these children on the way. It's all of them culminating in payoffs of things that we've seen earlier and uh, it's devastating and it's scary and it's emotional and it's all these wonderful things Um, and if you for some reason are still insisting no I don't have time to go and watch this whole uh, show uh, well take an hour and watch two storms I mean it's it's absolutely phenomenal well there are uh, there are two pretty uh, before we leave the Hill House, there are two pretty, uh, I think, potent scares. One is oh, by all uh, means. the old lady in the bed after Liv at the fireplace. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> and then how she's just like there. She's just like, chilling. She's just chilling. No no big you know, musical note to cue you that you should be scared. She's nope. just there. And, yep. Oh, oh, well, and that's awful. when she goes out in the hall and the little boy in the wheelchair, too. Um, yeah. The, the old lady yeah. is the worst. Um, and then I think for me... Just the goodness gracious, the emotional kind of horror of Steve yelling the wrong parent died that coincides oh, coincides yes, with Nell's yes. casket falling over. Oh gosh. Yeah. Oh, that's awful. Yeah, it's yep. so awful. And uh you know, it's not a scare, but just to mention the the emotional beat of Luke's final glance at the coffin. Again, I mentioned earlier Luke coincidentally as much of a wreck as he's made of his life he is the steadiest character in this entire exchange and his final glance back to the coffin and then he remembers him telling child Nell like you know don't don't do that again don't let them get you i thought the house got you and then it's just 
and then you hear Nell's voice saying, I was here the whole time. And right. you see her bent neck lady. Ver- like, goodness gracious, yeah. it is it is emotionally devastating. Powerful. Powerful yeah. and very effective, but emotionally devastating. It's it's wonderful. I I love, 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 love this show, and I love, love, love this episode. So next week, guys, we will be discussing episode seven of Hill House and uh, getting into Flannel Graph Flanagan. Reed, that's going to be... I'm so uh, excited for that's that. It's going to be fun. Oh, uh, have a fun time wait. with the Flannel Graphs and the Flanagan. Um, <laughs> that said, you know, like we are still, this is still Netflix and Chills. Let it not be confused. <laughs> um, it may be the final one, uh, sort of, I guess, in theory. But it is, in fact, the, final, the, the last of our major Netflix and Chills series here. And, you know... Last year for TV guideposts, see us all time. It's uh, time is a flat circle, you know. Um, <laughs> last year's TV guideposts, we talked about Black Mirror and how much of Black Mirror sensibilities are right up my alley. But no, I've not seen every Black Mirror episode. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> we'll get to it in in TV guidepost 2022. And that said, as part of Netflix and Chills, you and I were sort of bandying around what would be our kind of swan song for this series. And there were, there were a couple of options on the table and, and none of them bad. All of them actually stuff we would have been intrigued by, but and I don't recall the exact sort of moment it happened, but you threw out covering the, um, black mirror feature Bandersnatch. Yeah. And it, it did not take much convincing. Uh, think about for, a second and a half. <laughs> yeah. 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 I was just like, that's, that's perfect. That is. It's meta because it's you and I and the moments that we reference often on the show. If you have not, if you're new, if you're, if you're new with Fear God 2.0, uh, feel some freedom if you'd like to go check out the Descent episode to go check, <laughs> um, probably primarily just the Descent. I was going to say Stranger Things too, but that's more just we had different feelings on our experience. Right. We but had the, the same, same experience. Um, our episode on the descent, we did not discover until the literal end of the conversation that we had watched two different versions <laughs> of that film. I didn't even know a second version existed. Um, right. So we went in eyes wide open to the Bandersnatch read. Um, yeah. and, and what an experience that was. Now, I, I'm happy to divulge a little bit of my story, but I'm... Hear, hear me, man. The descent trained me. I'm, I've got self, <laughs> self, self preservation as the order of the day. So before I start talking, I want to know what you saw, brother. What was your okay. story? Okay. So yeah, cause the, cause every story is presumably different. So here's what I did. What uh, obviously as I was watching it, um, I sort of would, would jot down the choices that I made. Yeah. And then when it was all said and done, I wrote down a little plot synopsis. So if you'll, if you'll permit me, I'm just going to read. My plot synopsis. Too. Sure, you're okay. Right, yeah, so, you're a much you're much better at this than I was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? Okay. All right. So, um, okay. So here's what I put. I, I put um, uh, our character named Stefan dreams of developing and releasing an interactive game called Bandersnatch, based on the choose your own adventure novel by Jerome F. Davies. He's given a chance to pitch the game at Tuckersoft, home of the hit games by the famous programmer Colin Rittman. After a hasty acceptance, the game is eventually released to terrible reviews. So Stefan tries again. It goes back to the same day. This time, Stefan opts to develop the game on his own time, but he begins to suffer delusions. 
His psychiatrist, Dr. Haynes, thinks it's related to trauma from when he was a child and delayed his mother from catching her train. She was forced to take a later train, which then derailed her, killing her and dozens of other people. Fed up with seeing Dr. Haynes and suspicious of his medication, Stefan runs into Colin, who takes him back to his apartment where they share hallucinogens. Mm Mm-hmm. Colin then presents a theory that they're all being controlled by a mysterious external force and that none of the individual fates matter in the scope of the whole. And to prove his theory, he asks Stefan to choose one of them to leap from a high balcony, and Stefan chooses Colin, who then leaps to his death. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. You choose Colin, brother. (laughs) Let's be (laughs) clear. That is true. That is true. But Stefan did it. Um, Wow. So, so, but then Stefan, based on a suggestion during Colin's rant, tries to re-enter his bathroom mirror, which leads him back to his five-year-old time when he discovers that his dad actually took the rabbit he was searching for out of his room, causing him to be late, which caused his mother to be late, which caused her to take the later train, and it caused her death. Um, so Stefan's game software begins to suddenly like fracture and break down, and it causes him to miss his development deadline, and it further substantiates Colin's theory that he's being controlled. Eventually, he's told by his computer that his life is being viewed on Netflix by someone from the future. And so then he finally goes to Dr. Haynes, where she dismisses that theory by saying, like, no, the world's not entertaining enough. There's no way somebody could be watching you from the future. The world's not entertaining enough. So the two of them have a vicious physical fight. Dad eventually breaks in, and he, like, starts fighting with Dad. But then Dad drags him from the doctor's office while he's ranting about saying, see, we messed up your day, didn't we? Uh, Me and my friend from the future. Cut to credits. So you chose the Netflix ending from Go? No, I chose the symbol first, and then the symbol thing looped me back to taking me. Like, eventually he went back to the. He went to see Dr. Haynes, but that didn't help anything, and that's what sent him down this rabbit trail of, like, uh, rabbit trail, of, like, searching for the rabbit, but his dad took the rabbit and everything, and uh, he found his rabbit. But he found the rabbit in the dad's safe. Yeah. But he found the rabbit in his dad's safe and, and all of this other sort of stuff, and then, uh, yeah. So, so then there's that. That's. Now, event, I, now, after, <laughs> now, after after the after the credits thing, it did go back and show me like other little clips, but it was in this weird like haze. Like he was imagining what would have happened if he had punched in a different number in the safe to open it up, uh-huh. um, and so and then eventually it leads to him like. Uh, watching as his game is reviewed and they give him a poor review and, and the review is highly critical and it says try harder and, and all this other sort of stuff. But but yeah, so that was that was well, my... I, what's really funny <laughs> is like I actively, or so I thought, I actively made choices of someone who is typically conflict avoidant and I ended up having to murder my dad. For, uh, for real? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah. No, I was like, no, I don't want to do that. Me. It didn't let no. me not. My dad knows karate, and even though I, I, I apparently your therapist him, does too. She does, and she like busted out like these big weapons and everything like that. Like it was, yeah, it was pretty crazy. So you didn't fight with your therapist at all? I did reset to see that iteration, but oh no, no not my first time. <laughs> but through. in the first view, yeah, you didn't no. see that. Oh, that's so funny. See, uh, you're an overachiever because I only did one. And so, yeah, well, I, I didn't see all these. Other no, I, 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 yeah. I mean, I, I eventually went back and watched the Netflix scene, which is really weird. <laughs> if you haven't watched Bandersnatch, you, you should go check this out to watch some of this. It's, it's wild. Well, you but, know what I want to do though? What I want to do at one point, because I, if you, if you are watching it and you don't 
make a choice, then it will choose something for you. You have a time limit on it. And so I, w- I would be really curious to see if, you know, like what it would do. I would, I would like to just watch the episode, you know, and, and let it make all of its choices for me and see where it goes. You're, I mean. See just how malicious it is. Right, exactly. I mean, you're clearly an overachiever that you went back and did it all again. I wanted to, but I, I was like, oh, no, that's going to. Uh, well, I, but I'll be too now, confused. see, this is where I'm just not right. That's sort of what happened is I'm like, I'm not smart. Um, I, I, I like to, th- I'd like to think I am. I really like to think that, but then moments happen and you're like, Oh my God, I'm so, I'm so dumb here because when it ended for me, um, after I murder my dad and end up in prison, yes. Um, it just said exit to credits. Like it gave you the option. It's it's a little button up in the screen, and I was like, "Well, I, oh, I did. yeah, I saw it, that." The first time that happened, it confused me because I was like, "Well, is that it? Uh, you know, is, is that or the can end I make another G- yeah. right?" And so yeah. then I don't remember the interface, but then it would, I it would permit me to not exit the credits and just start recycling into the sure. story. Right, okay. So that that's you know, yeah, it was. Well, I did. Yeah. No, I know, right? I know. I did see a similar thing in mine, but once I chose not to exit to credits, then it just sent me through certain clips. Like I didn't have any choices after that. Um, well, I'm maybe pretty. I, didn't, I can't remember. Yeah, because uh, I think it me- yeah. the whole thing melted my brain. It, the experiment yeah. worked. I just, I just saw it. I just looked back at my little notes, and once it gave me the option to exit to credits, I only had one additional choice after that, and then it gave me no choice and sent me to credits. My overall time on it was like an hour. Like that's how that's how long my version of the story was. It was it was fifty five minutes from the first like exit to credits thing, and then when I chose not to exit to credits, it added like another eight to ten minutes. I think I was so worried I'd fallen into the matrix that I did not, <laughs> I did not pay attention to the runtime. It didn't even occur to me after the fact to do that. And then I was just like down that proverbial rabbit hole. And sure. just, I was like, this is wigging me out. I was actually trying to describe it the next day to my wife. And she's like, uh, uh-uh, uh, 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 what are you talking about? Because I was telling her how, I don't know if you got this or not, but there's a moment where, it's it asked me uh to either have him it might have been a poor t on the computer because he was getting frustrated with the game or bang on the desk and uh, i got that one yeah, yeah i got well, that choice. I, again i don't like confrontation i don't want this fella to break his his tools of his trade so i was like well bang on the desk and he resists he, he you know what's... A, what so in that same choice, I made him pour tea on the computer, and he oh, resists. Really? Oh, yeah. okay. Well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, so I was telling my wife about that because then he starts talking. He starts waking up to whatever's happening to him. Sure. And she yeah. was like, "No, no, that's not that's not cool at all." <laughs> She's like, "I'm just exhausted by this conversation. Right? I don't want. I don't want to continue like, on with this." Um, I mean, I I don't. There's so many nuances we can we can pick apart from the so many things to choose from (laughs) right right it's it's, it's like an adventure (laughs) so well okay so uh i I don't know exactly what you did you end up seeing an actual the bandersnatch oh 
like a suited, you mean like a, a like a demon dude? thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah it yeah. looked like a lion thing. Yeah, I think I saw him. I saw him after Colin. Maybe it was like, the hallucination. Yeah, maybe that was jumped it. like jumped off. Um, did you catch the metal? No, 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 Reed. You pushed him. Stop. I didn't push him. He jumped. These characters did jump. not have agency. You, no, you. I chose for him to jump, but he still. I feel off like the wall. a murderer. Because <laughs> then he wasn't around for like a long time after that. Right. No, I mean, well, what were you asking it, me? Did I what? Did you catch the metalhead poster everywhere? You probably wouldn't have. You, you haven't seen all of Black Mirror, so there's, no, there was. I did catch there, the nosedive reference. What was your nosedive <laughs> reference? I mean, you did you, we watch the same thing or not? Come we on. didn't. I didn't Who's have a nosedive. Who chose this? What's going on here? Who's it? <laughs> Who's saying that? <laughs> um, when Stefan is meeting Colin at Tuckersoft, Colin is showing him what he's developing. It's a new okay. game called Nosedive. Oh, yes. You know what's yeah, funny is I, I did, did have that, that, but I didn't. Yeah, but then. Um, but that's a, that's a Black Mirror reference. Yeah, no, I, I clearly recognize. Yeah, I remember it now, but I didn't put two and two together like, oh, yeah, that that's clearly reference to the episode Nosedive. Um, but, I mean, like, in terms of this whole concept, I I personally loved, and I don't know if every iteration of the story does, I would imagine that, that most of them, if not all of them, do, that um, they just went ahead and hung a lantern on, yeah, somebody's choosing for us. We're li- you know, it's only, like, choices made in congruence to the whole, and somebody is sort of picking where we are and that we, we are not ourselves. And it sparked this this fascinating thing in me about this whole conversation about like destiny and and free will and all of these uh, all of these kinds of things that are that are terribly meta to think about and this is not the first uh, story to explore that idea of like oh are we just in a snow globe being you know uh, watched monitored or possibly even controlled by some other entity but it was just i th- found it terribly inventive, and I thought it was an excellent and fascinating sort of question to raise. Um, and I don't know if you want to, like, dive hole into theme or what theme you had, if it was, you know, particularly uh, well, I different say, from this. I will say before we trod that path too, um, too much, I think if I have any dislike with the piece, it's simply that I think ultimately the narrative is pretty thin. You know, like oh sure, yeah, 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 like yeah. and to the point that when this is what I'm trying to say, when it first ended for me, I got confused of of whether it was you mm. know what I mean like I, d- I didn't even know is it was over it? right right yeah, right yeah, so yeah, yeah. Yeah. I do think the narrative is pretty thin, but clearly from a production standpoint, it's so dense. Um, oh pro- man. Who, who knows what all was involved in, in making this happen? But um, sure, but also just idea wise which i suppose we could sub in the word thematically it's it's super dense super thick i mean i felt like i've never done drugs literally ever (laughs) like i for a play one time had to learn sort of how to smoke a cigarette and even then i was probably pretty awful at it um (laughs) the the actual technique of it but like watching this you i'm like this must sort of sort of sort of be what like doing drugs is like i like my brain cannot handle what is what I am experiencing? Right, um, right it's like right. meta on top of meta on top of meta. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's because you've got the main character studying the work of a previous character who was 
experimenting on choice and will uh, uh, and then the our main character is creating a, a computer game on that material about choice and and <laughs> free will and then we are engaging a piece of content that is about executing some other character's choice and free will which then right. begets right. the layer of our own choices and will as it relates mm -hmm. to what we're having these people do oh my god my brain's gonna fall <laughs> apart <laughs> oh my gosh all the different levels yeah and uh there is this i mean this uh, in terms of a theme particularly for something that that our show would be interested in there is a constant struggle in conversation with people about uh, I guess I should say not all people, but there there are people who believe deeply in this idea of destiny and fate, sort of uh, on different spectrums. Those who say, like you know, even that that there's some preordination to what clothes they choose to wear, what breakfast they chose, whether they went right or left uh, to take the route to work that morning or whatever. And then there's other people who believe that like it is ultimately just action and reaction and you make your choice and that creates these little ripple effects and and that's the extent of it and so you know there's all kinds of places that you can go on that but there's a variety of different spectrums of belief about how the interplay between free will and purpose interact with one another well and and to piggyback on that i mean you use the phrases destiny and fate i i, I would those have a sort of I'm going to use this word here. Those have a sort of mystical component to it. Like I, I meant to go look up who this is. He's a very famous person in this field. I, I just did not allot myself the time to go look him up, but I listened to an on being episode about a year ago with this physicist, very famous physicist who it, part, part of my even listening to it was like, Hey, I just need to expose myself to these thoughts that are out there. I mean, very candid, sober, intelligent guy who, is basically like no 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 it's it's all predetermined it is literally all predetermined Whoa. yeah 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 i mean and has you know sort of a a very calculated academic reason for the the way he views this and and like i'm not I, the, even the way i'm saying it makes it sound like i'm dismissing it i'm not at all like it's you'll listen to it and you'll be like eh, that's a pretty good case uh you know <laughs> <laughs> wow. um so yeah i mean remove the kind of fate destiny component and just in terms of determinism he'd be like well yeah i mean it's all programmed um we are all wow not not in the simulation component but just in the, the way the laws of the universe work um right. it's right. all it's all determined um so you know it was meant that you and I would watch different versions of Bandersnatch and that it was, it's just a foregone conclusion. We'd end up talking about it. Um, now, what? so in, in, in his, uh, as well as you can in describing his, uh, you know, parsing down his philosophies, is there any room for choice and agency in it? Or is choice and agency an illusion in well, his articulation? I mean, illusion is a strong word, but what you have to recognize is, the viewpoint he's articulating is on such a cosmic scale that the finer points of how this manifests moment to moment, quote unquote, choice by choice, he would say, we just aren't capable of comprehending. Oh, um, okay. You know, but, and, and, but yeah, I mean, I do think uh, if I recall correctly, Krista Tippett asks a question very similar to that of like, well, 
you know, how, what do we do with even this as a concept, this free will mm-hmm. thing? And he's like, well, you recognize it might not be true whatsoever, but our brains are just not equipped to kind of comprehend, <laughs> you know, these upper level, wow. these upper level thought, you know, upper level sort of academic components and, and you still just live your life, you know? Right. Um, but yeah, it's a little, uh, yeah, you know, it, just that it, that. it is. It's, it's interesting to me because even as in the experience and the experiment of watching Bandersnatch, you make certain key choices, but then the characters make choices after that. The char- like the characters do things yeah. that you don't get well, to choose. Right. Which, so you make which certain may key- be a deterministic sort of viewpoint. It's going to happen yeah. regardless. Well, we just both described that even though we had him, there was one moment, at least one moment, where even though we had him do different things, both of those things he resisted. Like, you had him, like, bang his hand on the desk, but he resisted doing that. I told him to pour tea over his computer, and he chose not to do that. And I don't know, it's interesting, because, yeah, you, it was fascinating to me. You mentioned you had you tried to make him pull his earlobe. He resisted that, too, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, and so it's it's just funny to me that in this concept, and obviously we on this show, we, we deal with the material as material and then talk about what it makes us think of kind of uh, thematically or metaphysically, whatever, you know, spiritually, whatever you want to use there. And to me, it, it really is a fascinating observation to think about the idea of how one choice that you make can determine a different set of outcomes. Right. Like you choose to do this one thing. And so I, I don't personally believe in a fully deterministic world. Sure. I, I believe that we have free choice and, and free will. And, and I do believe that there are pivot points, that there are things, and this is getting into some like real heady theology real quick, but I believe that, that a, a divine intervention is possible to either influence or pivot or guide certain choices but i think ultimately you still have the choice you still have the the decision is at your disposal to go this way that's that's getting into my personal beliefs that's that i i believe that the free will option is never really overridden but i do believe that there are influential factors in both directions. I spoke about the divine earlier. I believe there are uh, maliciously influential factors as well and that you are just constantly being... Now, that's one thing. I would probably need to listen to the Krista Tippett interview, but that is one thing where I do believe there are, perhaps you could call them unseen influences. NPR has a fascinating show called Invisibilia that talks about that, that like, you know, the the things you can't see that are directing and right, influencing right, your right. decisions. You take that into a spiritual realm, and I believe in the spiritual element of it as well, that there are things that are pushing you one way or another way, and you still ultimately, in my belief, have the choice to go to the left, to the right, to slant this way, to slant that way, and that, uh, yeah, that ultimately you will make certain choices that may close off other choices you could have made. And, you know, there'll be sometimes where you step through doors that open up thousands of others. Uh, I mean, it's, it, it's fascinating to think about, to try to wrap your mind and head and heart around. Well, yes. 
And I'm going to tie two previous Fear God episodes into this real quick. Last week we said, with reference to Cam, you don't know what you don't know. And four weeks ago, I think at this point, we you, you're referencing Unseen Forces. I made the reference to Wilf in 1922, that there are things that were mm-hmm. yeah. influencing him that he was just... He doesn't know what he doesn't know. And he did, he lacked the competency sure and and capacity um to kind of recognize those influencing factors it's interesting this is really this may seem random but tying some of this stuff together about determinism and and the things that guide my wife yesterday if you're new to the show welcome you'll hear nathan's ongoing sort of malaise and or ambivalence <laughs> about turning 40 in 2019 but <laughs> you know attached to that is a lot of sort of identity aspects of vocation and work and all this sort of stuff and what are you doing which means if you're doing this it means you're not doing that and blah 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 all um, right. well she right. sent she sent me this article yesterday from a person she heard on npr and the whole piece, I haven't even finished it yet, but it's on workism. Mm. And basically this person is propping up the notion that we have sort of religi- religi- religiosified. Man, I'm just making some stuff up here late at night. But like <laughs> the, the premise of the piece is we will have faith in a thing. Mm. Much of millennial America and the shape of our current quote unquote gig economy, that faith has been in a work environment like we put our faith because the generation before us our parents generation work and work ethic became such an intrinsic identifier and economic boon to a a, a thriving capitalistic economy right 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 so what this person's are trying to articulate is a lot of people are our age and younger are very depressed right now in their work because mm. because the generation before us passed on this notion that identity can and maybe should be derived from your work. Now we oh, wow. we morphed that into purpose conversation, purpose language, mm. right? Like th- do something you're passionate about, do something you're purposeful for. In fact, the premise of the article is college educated people are experiencing the most depression in their work. Because oh, wow. you've got lower income, non-college educated that work out of necessity. Like, like mm. you have to work because to not work means no lights on. Right, um, right. I, you know, folks like even you and I, like college educated people who, yes, have to work because bills have to get paid. But there's more privilege attached to that. There's more luxury attached mm. to that. You know what I mean? So it's this really fascinating thing. And what, what I'm trying to get to is unseen forces that affect us and so so reading through this article it really kind of if i'm going to be honest the last sort of 48 hours for me personally i've been in a bit of that stupor a bit of that work-related malaise and like wilf buffeted by these unseen forces it's attached to my how am i identifying myself Mm, mm mm-hmm Stefan in the movie, in the, in Bandersnatch identifies himself as just this guy who's a game designer and wants to be a game right. designer, having no clue the doors he's opening, the doors that are manipulating him, uh, in his father and his right. e- extraneous right. Dharma initiative level work 
um, in, uh, <laughs> right. in, in us, his manipulators. And so mm-hmm. reading this article today, I had this real, I mean, I, I, I thank the Lord for this sort of intercession and in my wokeness towards myself. Like I had this moment in reading this piece about the identity we attach to where of just waking up. Like it read, it changed my spirit in the day. Mm. Like I was, I was in this funk and you read, I read this piece and I was like, Oh, I am forgetting because I'm choosing to wrap an identity in because we are going to do it. Like, you know, scripture talks about serving two masters. Well, in our parlance, you can't have competing identities. Yeah. Right. You know, you, you are going to, in the course of a time, be like, well, I am a salesperson. Mm, mm, mm-hmm. that's, that's me. That's how I identify myself. And sales aren't great this day or this week or whatever. So I'm down and I'm feeling bad about myself. Right, right. And then you read a piece or you're reminded, wait a minute, like work is not my faith. Work is not a religion to me. Belovedness of spirit is. a uh, uh, Sonship of God is. Like these are identifiers that it's so we're so prone to forget. Mm, um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, I know that feels like I'm all over the place, but it's choose your own adventure, man. Choose your own adventure. <laughs> choose your own conversation. Okay, back off, Reed. Back oh, off. Oh my gosh. No. Well, and it, it's uh, it's funny that you mentioned this. So the 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 thing that it makes me think of from a perspective, you referenced a couple of scriptures there. Uh, it makes me think of that like double. That's what I do. That's what yeah, I do. That's what you do. But it makes me think of something that the scriptures, don't ask me where they are. Well, no, of course not. <laughs> Who knows that? Um, but, uh, you know. It, your, your grandfather did. He did. He knew all of it. Like yeah, he, knew, he, told he, knew. That, he told that fanny joke like no one else could. Oh, my gosh. You are, like, going deep cut. I'm trying to, like, follow your rabbit trail. And then you're just like like keep pulling. up, Reed. Keep you're, up, keep up. I know who I am. The, whoever's you know who whoever's controlling us is like make Nathan annoy Reed. Make Nathan annoy Reed. Oh, <laughs> I'm annoying you. Sorry. Wow, you didn't follow the trail. You didn't laugh. You were just like, oh, you just. Anyway, go where you're going. No, so so what I'm trying to say is that the the scriptural concept of being like double minded, but. In, in the scriptures, double-mindedness, um, you are basically at the behest of wherever the storm of life pushes you. If it raises you up, then you are very uh, elated and you are uh, joyful. And if it crashes you down, then you are in the depths of despair and about to sink. And James chapter 1 and verse 8 just says that uh, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Oh, it, this idea of like a a disconnect, basically a subdivision of self and identity. It, it does get into, I, I hate, I shouldn't say I hate the phrase because I, I kind of understand what they're, what they're going for. I just have some difficulty when people use the word, like when they use the phrase, find your identity in Christ. Right. Um, I find it very difficult to have anybody be able to effectively articulate what they mean when they say that. And so it just, it, sure. it just, I, I just struggle with that choice of phrasing. It's not that I, you know, consider the phrasing unhelpful or anything. It's just, well, you need, you well, need some further definition, yeah. you know, I mean, it, it is unhelpful. it's a little, it's a little unhelpful. Um, but I think to me, the concept of like being double minded, 
it definitely is something that I grasp onto a lot more. It's just if you are constantly split between what you think you should do and what you uh, want to do, if you're constantly split between uh, differing desires, you mentioned you know you can't serve two masters, and and I do think that um, we have a tendency to navigate our life wanting to. Here's the funny thing that Bandersnatch also made me think about is. I don't know. I don't know if this is true for everybody. Uh, may not even be true for most people. But I know a lot of people in my circle of friends that struggle with just wanting to be told what's next. Just tell right. me. Tell me what is next to do. Tell me the thing that I am supposed to do to meet said end, and I will do that thing. Tell me. You know. Just. Just basically, as much as we would want the idea of choice, or as much as we would want the idea of of free will we find uncertainty terribly scary and and right. don't and don't want necessarily to be left wide open with no structure and uh and I mean that's not true for everybody there are plenty of people who I won't call them anarchists but they definitely lead into sort of a lack of determinism an utter lack of determinism brings them comfort in most of my conversations with my friends and peers Determinism provides structure, which provides comfort, and they almost seek it to a degree. And I'm, I'm going somewhere with this, and maybe this will be a button to, to kind of wrap up the conversation. People will want to know, in my circle of friends, people will want to know, please just tell me what the next thing I'm supposed to do is. So then they will do that thing. They want kind of the recipe. They want the grid of it. But I think the better, greater, and what I think is authentically what happens in sort of the metaphysical and spiritual supernatural realm of things is I believe the Lord, as I would uh, express what others might call just a deterministic force, I simply say, well, the Lord is the one that does it. What I believe the Lord does is I do believe that he sets before us choices and paths and opportunities, and I believe he wants to cultivate in us the sense of being able to follow and trust what is good and what is right and wants to develop those instincts in us and wants to develop that that contrary nature in us that would actually go with what is good and right and pure rather than the tendency in which we most often lean, I think, which is to follow what is destructive and self-destructive and you know follow selfish means to our own ends. And I think what happens is the choice is always there before us, but there are things that would love to cultivate in us a better, healthier choice and, and to start trying to lean our lives into other decisions. To put, to put it another way, because that feels very lofty the way that I'm describing it, it's really not just about one choice that you make that then pivots everything else down. Right. You cultivate a multitude of choices. You mm-hmm. cultivate certain decisions. And, and what's what, what I find beautiful about it is that you have choices that you could make tomorrow that could pivot tomorrow in different directions. And what are you... You described on this show, and I've adopted it in my personal life and in uh, you know my leadership at my work and everything, of doing the next right thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really key, and I think that's really important, is that, yeah, there's a mountain of choices that brought you here, but there's also a, an ocean of choices ahead of you and we, as much as we would want to just know, it's why 
there is a psychic industry and why people read horoscopes and all this kind of thing. They want to know. They want somebody to tell them what to do. And I think it is it behooves us to get to a place where we can just continually choose with confidence and assurance the next right thing uh, and to cultivate those confident choices in us that this is the right moral thing to do, even if there are consequences that come on the heels of it. This is the right good thing to do and to continue to cultivate those choices in our lives. That's what I think you know, the divine and what the Lord is leading people towards and what he's trying to get them to accomplish. It's fascinating you bring that up and, and at risk of opening wide a door here that needs to start closing. Um, you aren't stating this, but I, I'm, I'm going to pull on a thread here. You know, we want to be told what to do. Lofty versus practical. Man, I was listening today. You you mentioned um, uh, American Hysteria. Um, yeah, yeah. Podcasts I listened to, or did you? <laughs> um <laughs> Podcasts I listen to that aren't us uh, that I reference often here is Chris Hayes, but also the Bible for Normal People. Well, they just relaunched their their own kind of new season, and there was a gentleman on there today, a guy named Xavier Pickett, and he's an NYU professor. Um, he's got a really interesting faith story. Well, he's an African American guy, and like I would encourage anyone to listen to it, but especially you as my friend, and just like the conversations we tend to have, but. He's talking about sort of the African-American faith experience in this country. And, and he he makes this really interesting kind of scary parallel. And he talks about what is theological versus what is moral. And in his one of his classes he's teaching, he identifies how timeline-wise... The, the uh, Scopes Monkey Trial story, right? Oh, Supreme, yeah. Supreme, yeah. Supreme Court evolution is raging in the Supreme Court. This is a theological conversation. Right, right. Right? Like, did we descend from apes or were we, you know, Adam and Eve, fully human, whatever? He says, at the same time chronologically is when lynching was at its peak mm. in, in, the, in the American South. And he, he roots that in the, the language of the church. Like this, this was enacted. He tells the story. Like you'd go to church and your church, you'd go lynch someone. Like this, this was part of oh the fabric of the Southern experience. And the point he's trying to make was the disconnect between the theological and the moral. Mm. And, and maybe this seems really far afield of where you were at, but it felt like you were touching on this of like, determinism the, the 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 actions we put our hands to and the conscientiousness of them like well just tell me what to do okay well after church we're going to go do this well, what does it mean to be a christian well we're not descended from monkeys like connect the point here connect mm. the two here mm. which is to say your theology has to affect your morality uh you are yes now maybe this is me getting preachy you you it is not all deterministic you you are a participant you 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 set your hands to a life that gets shaped to a, a heaven that gets birthed or a hell that gets wrought, right? Right. And right. and there are plenty of Christians who have wrought hell. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's be yes. honest. Oh yeah. You know, and and it's which is it's, uh, which is biblical, yeah. by the way, because that is actually something that that, and I don't have the scripture pulled up for me, but that's something that Christ Himself said to the Pharisees. He said, "You'll go out, find a disciple, and make him an even worse agent of hell than you are." 
is said that to the Pharisees, and that's sure. a condition that still exists today. Um, I apologize for cutting you off, but no, I was just no, like, no, no, that that is an actual uh, not not that this is a rare occasion, but it's like, yeah, what you just described is not only true. That was spoken and identified by Christ Himself to some of the religious elite at the time, and said that, yeah, you you are going out making disciples after yourselves and making them agents of hell. Well, it's funny, and goodness gracious, I, I it was not my intention to ramp us into this, but there's a world where much of evangelical Christendom may espouse a non-deterministic sort of viewpoint. Oh, no, no, free will, free will, free will. Mm. But I'll be doggone if we don't behave in mass as though it is already predetermined. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Apocalypse is coming. Armageddon is coming. Just uh, let me just sit back and not worry about me um, because I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I am washed and covered in the blood, brother. The gays and the Muslims, not really. But I don't have to worry about them because they're gays and they're Muslims. And uh, I don't have to do anything, though. Mm. My, the- my theological and my moral are disconnected. Mm-hmm. Theologically, I'm thinking, oh, cool. Armageddon's coming, but I'm good. Uh, we, we crave that rapturous Tim LaHaye version of things. Meanwhile, ignoring that it's what this guy on this podcast is talking about. Like you're, you're, you're arguing whether we descended from, you know, apes or Adam and you're murdering people. Right, 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 right. You know, like, I I don't, don't, but I'm trying, desperately trying to connect this to the film, which is, is, is the, is the outcome of American Christian religion determined. Mm, Right. Or are we, and yes, you are the hands and feet. You embody this in your day to day. You embody it. And if you don't, are you a Christian? That's a great question. Because the embodying is the connection point of the theological and the moral, right? Mm. I mean, and I know this seems super far afield, but Bandersnatch is about are we in control of our actions? Because if we aren't, then screw it. Mm. Right. If we are, I want to make sure there's as many people aware of their belovedness as I can mm-hmm. and not just resign them to the pit, the, the shield, the Hades, whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah, I, I don't know where no, I'm from, but I understand. Well, and and maybe you could sum up uh, Bandersnatch and this the heartbeat of this conversation. To life is not a game. Like it's it's not something that uh, like you're you're scratching it so much about the connecting the theological. Sorry, and, no, you don't have to apologize, <laughs> but like. Connecting the theological and the moral, like I was having a conversation, uh, a rather uh, civil and and intellectual debate uh, regarding certain theological points, and I wouldn't say we were wrestling with a moral issue, but it was definitely sort of a debate about theology in the degree that, well, no, this is what it says, so that means it doesn't really matter who is subverted and detrimented because this is what it says. Uh, without getting into the specifics of the conversation, there it was a debate about authority, agency, and position that certain people groups have within certain contexts. And uh, it was, again, it was a theological debate, and uh, some people in the position were basically that, 
yes, this is what the text says, and I translate it as such. And a couple of us in the conversation, I was in this camp, so I can speak to it a little bit more uh, fluidly. Some of us in the camp were like, okay, I recognize that, but there are principles at work beneath what that text says that can't be ignored. And so there are other places in which, you know, there are other precedents throughout Scripture that would seem to be an opponent of what you are very rigidly articulating here. And again, the conversation was a, a civil debate. Something that I believe is you're talking about this determinism, and it just is rattling around so much when you say, like, the theological and the moral, and we want to be told what to do, that, like, yeah, how many things that utterly devastate the heart of God have been done in his name? And, right. And, and how much have we pushed forward that would make him weep? But here, here's the other thing, is that he... At least to this point, there is no, in in my understanding of it, um, there is no concept of justice and accountability if we don't have that will and that agency. But we conveniently want to chalk up our positions that don't hold up morally or logically to, well, this is what it says. That's right. what we that, that's I mean, what we tend to fall back on. Yeah. I, there's a person in our in our very close circle that uh, is an elder uh, person, so I'm sensitive to that. But loves to espouse. Uh, well, well, I believe this, or, or you know, I I go to this church because they just preach the Bible, and mm-hmm. I want to say to this person, like like you said an hour ago, my identity is in Christ. Well, what does that mean? You, what do you even mean? Like that does not that no. I'm yeah. sorry. Like, right. I don't mean this to sound hyper relativistic. I really don't mean it this way, but everybody poops. Everybody interprets. This is you just saying, well, I just go here because they preach the Bible. Okay. Well, <laughs> right. There, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff in there, man. Like, mm-hmm. what do you, what do you, what do you mean? Cause, yeah, cause right. you're going to have a lens. You're going to, mm-hmm. you're going to have an identifier. You're going to have a means by which you thread this needle. Right. And Correct. Just saying, well, that's what the Bible says. Well, yeah, okay. there's a similar. Yeah, there's a similar phrase that I balk at uh, almost equally. That when people say the Bible is clear, I'm like, no, it's no, it's never. Man, it's never. It, no, and 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 that's. So we're talking about choice and determinism and these all these you know very simple subjects on this conversation <laughs> that we keep trying to wind down. Really, what it what it comes to, as I see it, is that yes, you can view your world as a sequence of choices that you are in control of. And that's terrifying to some people because if they're in control of their choices, then they're accountable to those choices. And that's actually what I believe, by the way, is that we are accountable to, to the choices that we have made. And I believe that, that when the final judgment comes down, whatever it looks like and whenever it takes place, I believe that the wise and righteous judge will not sacrifice justice for the sake of mercy, but I also believe the reverse is true, too, that he won't sacrifice mercy for the sake of justice. Somehow he will, in his creative and inventive way, find that that mutual point at which both needs are satisfied. And for me, I think that what, what it falls to us to do is it falls to us to recognize the power of our choices and recognize that they are choices that we are that we can make i i get so irate when people will 
do devastating things and say devastating things and then uh, simply sort of wash their hands like Pilate before Christ and say, like, well, this is not my responsibility. This is, this is somebody else did this thing, and I'm just a part of it. I think the really hard work, the really difficult task ahead of us is to somehow allow the mystery of walking by faith and walking in faith to continue to shape our day-to-day choices and continue to allow ourselves to be pliable and to continue to allow ourselves to be open to understanding and recognizing where the Lord is taking things next. And um, again, that's my view of how to articulate all of these things. I, you know, if the Lord wants to take it to a computer that says it's watching us on Netflix and telling us, you know, all this stuff, then they can do it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> on that note, to the fog meter! <laughs> exactly. Do you like how I did that? Do you like how I was like, we need to wind like this down? I like most so listeners can... that are still in, they're like, dang, these guys are just like going all over town. <laughs> no kidding. Well, I mean. Choose your own slight, adventure. Right. In our slight defense here, there's this, this little piece of media is chock full of giant ideas it's playing with it's tough to wrestle down no it Um, absolutely is so yeah to the fog meter we are going to rank bandersnatch uh by two uh objective categories at least as objective as we can be um but hey everybody poops everybody interprets everybody's (laughs) everybody's subjective so we're going to attempt to be objective here on two main categories fear uh, and or is it scary or not? And then God, is it substantive? Like, what, is there substance happening here? Read on the on the fear factor. What? How would you sort of identify Bandersnatch? Um, this this is barely scary at all. It is also barely disturbing. It's endlessly fascinating. But on fear, I'm gonna give it a two. Um, I think that. I'm gonna go a hair higher than you and go three, if only because I think. The experience of mm, mm, being okay. the sort of performative agent, the guiding agent of this piece of media was a bit rattling. It was stressful. It was wild to, yeah, yeah, it was. Because I was like, sure. no, I don't want you to do things that are going to harm you or someone else. Right. No, stop it. Right, right, no, right. just let me pick the music you're going to listen to again and your cereal. I know. Let me pick um, your sugar pups. Right, right, right. Um, as far as the uh, substance factor. Um, I, I actually think it's pretty thin on narrative as mentioned, but really high on sort of idea. So I'm, I'm going to go six. I think it's got a lot. It's sort of, it's at least giving lip service to and or diving mildly deep on in terms of big ideas. Um, I think for me, for the God meter, the substance meter, it's, it's going to be kind of right there with you. I'm going to give it a seven. Uh, for for kind of substance meter because I agree narrative wise it's a little thin but it is very interested in in some big ideas and I think it executes those both in concept and through the course of the narrative in an effective way so um, but now getting to the the other question at hand would you Mr. Nathan Rouse recommend Black Mirror Bandersnatch absolutely I think I think that I don't know that I would go revisit it personally, but it's absolutely a thing. Like if you like any Black Mirror, if you like any of the stuff we typically talk about, um, the experience of playing Bandersnatch yeah. is, yeah. <laughs> is 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 a wild one. No, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, for me, this is a really easy, strong recommend. Um, unless the concept of constantly making choices while you're watching a film is stressful to you automatically. 
this is a really easy recommend. You've, you've just got to experience this, even if you give up halfway through because you're frustrated. And to, like, you've just got to see. Uh, Netflix has done a really phenomenal thing here. It's, it's endlessly fascinating. And uh, yeah, you've, you've just simply got to check it out. So, Reed, that does put, uh, in terms of the fog meter for Black Mirror Bandersnatch, we are at a four and a half. Which sounds like a low number, but honestly, that's just because it really isn't scary. Um, and, mm. and at least in any sort of traditional sense, but that substance meter does buoy it up. I just like the word buoy. Um, <laughs> so read what a time we've had this has uh, been with crazy. old Netflix. I know they like to say they got Netflix and chills first, but it was really us. We know it. You know? <laughs> um, so this has been a great run of, of, uh, films we've covered, uh, during our Netflix and chills series. Um, starting next week, you could make a case we're just extending Netflix and chills, but we are rebranding, um, <laughs> a little run here. So we will be, as mentioned earlier, jumping into a brand new series where we're going to be dissecting some of the films of Mike Flanagan as we barrel towards the finale of Hill House. Um, so we will be doing that in a few weeks. Before we get to that, though, next week, we are going to be discussing a film of Mike Flanagan's that is also on Netflix called Before I Wake. That's I'm so pretty excited. I, I've never seen it. I oh, I, I don't know I, anything about it. Yeah, I I saw it and loved it. I don't want to tilt you too much, but yes, I'm I'm curious to see and excited to hear how um how you respond to it. So yes, yeah. Well, you know, I, fortunately, like Cam, at least one of us has seen it. And we don't, you know, there's, we're not going in blind here. Um, I'm coming out blind like in Bird Box. Oh um, so yeah, next week we will be discussing Before I Wake. Uh, enjoy that between now and then. We hope you've enjoyed Netflix and Chills. We hope you have enjoyed. Black Mirror Bandersnatch. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed your time because I know we have. Reed, thank you yes. for once again indulging a meandering but, hope- <laughs> but hopefully enjoyable uh, and rich conversation uh, Absolutely. on this episode of The Fear of God. Guys, we will see you next week. Bye, everybody. The Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but it is not the end of the conversation. You can continue this conversation in a variety of ways. On Twitter, at The Fear of God. On Instagram, at Fear of God Podcast. You can like or follow us on Facebook or join the Fear of God Facebook discussion group. Follow Reed on Twitter, at Reed Lackey. And Nathan, at The Nathan Rouse. Email us at fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com or visit morethanonelesson.com to comment on the official episode posts. And lastly, if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating or a review. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Hi, everybody.